0: I've been informed that the Super Bowl starts at six thirty so we'll just have to see what happens, guys. that's the- I forgot the game all right, turn your Bible to um, genesis chapter forty one and we're not going to read quite the whole chapter tonight, but we're going to go down through verse thirty two as our text. So starting verse one, it says, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, "'Today I am reminded of my shortcomings.' Pharaoh was once angry with his servant, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he quickly was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, When out of the river, there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them up, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain full of good growing, on full of full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land, throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Let's go to Lord prayer. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for, God, the way that you reveal yourself to us. God, help us to be reminded that as we come to your word, you are speaking to your people. God, that we have the opportunity to hear from the God of the universe as he tells us the stories of the way he has worked in the history of the world and the history of his people. God, that we are united to these people um, by faith, and that these stories are our stories as well. God, that we see in them God, the same principles that that we um, apply to our own lives. God, that we see the same morals, the same teachings. God, that you have given us these passages as examples for us um, to teach us to uh, mature us, to make us into the people that you've called us to be. God, we also recognize that in your word, you show us your son. You foretell his coming and you, um, Father, give us a foreshadowing of, of who he is to be. And God, as people who now live after the coming of Christ, we look back and are um, emboldened and encouraged and our faith is confirmed as we see your story playing out um, through thousands of years of history. God, as we open your word, we ask that you would use it to shape your people. Uh, We thank you for the churches of Blount County. We pray for them. We pray for um, our community in the midst of, of several weeks of um, tragedy and difficulty and heartache. Um, God, we recognize that what is most needed in our community um, is the gospel. God, education is good. Social services are good. Economy is good. That the gospel is what is needed, that lives would be changed, that sins would be repented of, that people would find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and that they would, um, Father, their lives would be changed, and that they would live in a way that honors you. Um, and takes that good message to the world. Father, that is what we need. And so we pray for the churches of Black County. We pray for the Christians of Black County. We pray that we would be vessels of that message, that we would give a testimony to the world as we engage with our work, as we engage with school, as we engage with our families, and we, as, as we engage with our our teams and our social activities, as we engage with our neighbors. God, that we would be people who cannot help but share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we fail at that in so many ways. Um, we are so lax in in our witness in so many ways. God, help us to be emboldened in that. God, to speak the truth in love. And, and God, we pray that you would use that and go before it, knowing that you have a plan um, for our community. Um, you have a plan for your churches. We ask that that would be a plan of mercy and grace. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Um, Bless us as we open your word tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... I'll try to jump in and move quickly, um, uh, not just because we have somewhere to be at 6:30, apparently, but also because, again, man, these—it's hard to pack everything that I want to say the last couple of weeks into to the normal time we've got. So let me get going. Uh, so, sort of a story recap: you you know why at the very beginning of this passage it says, "Now two years had passed." It doesn't tell us anything about those two years, and there's probably a reason for that. The reason is because nothing happened. That ties into our story from last week, that, that Joseph is, is there in prison, that he feels forgotten, that his life seems like it has come to an abrupt, um, uh, uh, disillusionment. It, it, there's nothing left there. Nothing good is going to happen. And so he is just there waiting, um, seemingly forgotten in prison. And yet two years pass. And and nothing happens. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, two years later, in in a place that probably seems very far away and disconnected from Joseph, even though it is probably only within miles of where he is he has been in prison for years. Pharaoh has a dream. In fact, he has two dreams, just like the cupbearer and the baker had had. In fact, just like Joseph had had all those years ago when he dreamed of of his brothers and even his mother and father bowing down to him. And Pharaoh senses that that dream is not just some flight of fancy in his head, but this is a uh, a message from God, but for all of the wisdom and the occult knowledge of all of those Egyptian magicians, those magi that we talked about back during um, the the Christmas season, um, for all of their knowledge, they cannot interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and then, out of nowhere, the cupbearer remembers. And the cupbearer says I I rem- I'm reminded of my shortcomings this day. He remembers Joseph. He tells Pharaoh about Joseph and uh what the cupbearer interprets is his ability to interpret j- dreams and Joseph is summoned to the palace. Um and yet when he gets there and and Pharaoh says, "Hey, I hear you're a man who can interpret dreams." Joseph again is is uh, honest and a man of integrity. He does not try to puff himself up. He does not try to make himself the indispensable man. Instead, he says, uh, I can't do anything. Um, I'm incapable uh, of doing anything, but God can interpret your dream and God will give you the answer um, that for what your dream means. So uh, it is not Joseph who gives the interpretation, but God. All right. Now, um, we have this interesting phenomenon, and this is where we're going to sort of, this sermon is going to be a little weird. To be all honest, it's not going to be a super expository sermon. I'm going to zoom in on one little passage there at the very end, verse 32, and that's going to be our jumping off point, but we're going to talk a little more, um, broadly and, and, and systematically about a particular issue, and that is the issue of providence. The word Providence, a word that um, you hear in, and sometimes we misunderstand in in uh, the church and 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 it's connected to all kinds of things. but I want to draw your attention to something first, and that is this: as we've gone through the story of of Joseph, um, you may or may not have noticed something. I mentioned it the very first week, but there is a preponderance of twos in in the story. Things keep on happening in twos, over and over and over again. Stories happen in twos, and incidents happen in twos. And so let me read you what one scholar, just because it was easier for him to summarize it than for me. Let me go through the whole thing. says, scholars have long noted the unusual amount of doubling in the story of Joseph. There are three sets of dreams that occur in pairs in Joseph by his fellow prisoners, by Pharaoh, and by Joseph himself. Joseph is twice confined, once in a pit, once in a prison. The brothers make two trips to Egypt for grain, have two audiences with Joseph, and on each occasion, twice find money in their grain bags. They make two attempts to gain Jacob's permission to send Benjamin to Egypt, and finally receive two invitations to settle in Egypt. Both Potiphar and the prison keeper leave everything in Joseph's hands. Potiphar's wife makes two attempts to seduce Joseph and then accuses him twice of, of with the false accusation. Joseph serves two prominent prisoners and two years lapse between their dreams and those of Pharaoh. Joseph twice accuses his brothers of spying, devises two plans to force the brothers to bring Benjamin to Egypt, and on two occasions places money in their sacks. Finally, the same goods, gum, balm, and myrrh are twice brought from Canaan to Egypt, first with Joseph and later with Benjamin. So over and over again, we see this doubling, and it's just sort of weird, Right. Um, That everything seems to happen in twos throughout the course of this story. Now, what could be the meaning of that? Why on earth would that be the case? Why? You know, we think about we know some things about numbers in the Bible. Right. Three is a is a particular number. And so we see places in the Bible where things are tripled and we know that that's an emphasis on holiness and things like that. Seven's an important number. Twelve's an important number. What's the point of this doubling that keeps on happening? Well, I think the passage itself gives us a hint to that answer and it is down in verse 32. So what does he say? He says the reason he's, this is Joseph talking to Pharaoh. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. So Joseph says the doubling is a sign from God that these are his plans. And he intends to see them to fruition. In the story, that is the case with this double dream that Pharaoh has. But what I'm suggesting to you is is as we read through the story, the doubling everywhere in the story is giving us a clue to its purpose. Like what we're supposed to be doing after we hear Joseph say that is saying, in this story, when these things keep on doubling That is God's sign that he is in control, that this is part of his plan, and that he is going to bring these things to fruition. Because it's kind of a random comment that he makes there about, well, the reason why you've had two dreams is because God is showing you that what, again, two things, that these things have been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. All right? So that's sort of the the center of our topic tonight as we jump into this idea of God's providence. That's our text for this evening and like I said it's a pretty pretty loose text we're going to use it as a jumping off point. Um but providence is a topic that we have been dancing around all throughout the story so far. And tonight we're going to zoom in on that particular doctrine doctrine itself. So what do we mean when we talk about the word providence? Providence is generically, generally, like if you just use it in, in, in culture and in, in any sort of philosophical or religious context. Usually when people talk about providence, what they're talking about is the idea of God's guardianship over creation and his timely provision for future events. Okay, does that make sense? that God is taking care of his creation and he is organizing things to provide for future events, right? And that definition fits with the Christian definition, but but the Christian understanding of providence, there is more to it. So in in the Christian understanding of the the doctrine of providence, um, it's connected to God's sovereignty. That is his control and authority over all things. It's also connected to the idea of predestination, which is the idea that God has ordained future events in accordance with his will. In a way, it is the reverse side of a miracle, which is an interesting idea. The idea that a miracle is a way that God intercedes in the course of human events outside of the normal boundaries of the natural order, And you know what providence is, is the opposite. Providence is when God works through the natural order and the ordinary series of events that are going on. And so but the key is is this is that God is working at all times. It's such a strange thing I thought as as I was studying this to say so many people would say oh well you know why don't partially I don't believe in God because I don't believe in miracles. But Christianity says something far more than just miracles. It says no, you what you don't understand is not only are miracles true, but actually God is actually working all the time in all ways on every single level of of existence. To provide and work in and bring his fa- uh, plans to f- fruition. So let me, let me share with you some of the wording that some of the, the famous catechisms and confessions of the church have talked about providence. The Westminster confession, um, says this, God's work of providence, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise and powerful preservings and governing all of his creatures ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. The Westminster, uh that was the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg was the, the Dutch Reformed um, Confession of Faith and Catechism. Says this, the Almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, And so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and bearing years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So when we zoom in, Providence Is, is, so those are, those are the kind of big categories. Do you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about providence? Well, there's, there's a, there's a way that we can zoom in and talk about that providence, really start to try to break it down systematically and theologically and, and define it even deeper in three categories. Okay. And those are three words. And again, you take notes with this or you can just sort of say, Ash, I'm just going to try to glean a little bit from this thing and, you know, and, and, and take what, what I can get from it, okay? But but the doctrine of providence has at least these three parts. And and different theologians talk about it in different ways, but we're going to talk about it this way. Providence is about God's preservation. It is about God's concurrence. And it's about God's government. All right, so let's kind of walk through each of those and show what they mean. So preservation, the first, perhaps, aspect of providence that we maybe think about the least or some people don't even think about at all, but it makes sense to start there is this idea of preservation. And, And that is the idea of this. God is actively keeping the world existing by his power. Like right now, The reason why we are here, the reason why we exist, is because God himself is continually willing us into existence. If God were to cease doing that for even a moment, we would all cease to exist. If God were to stop thinking about us, in in thinking of it in human terms, for even a moment, we would cease to be. We have a tendency to think that the way God has designed the universe is like a machine, that he built this machine that is the universe, and he turned it on, and he got it going, and now this thing's just running, right? And it's just running on its own principles and doing its own thing, and and pretty much God, Some some philosophies have even said this is actually how he works. Deism says that, right? God just started this machine, and now he's gone off somewhere, and he's doing other things, but this machine keeps on running. But that is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is is that this machine does not run by itself, that what is keeping it running every single second of every single day is God's active care for his creation. So speaking of Christ, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and then it goes on and says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? That Christ... Currently, is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1 says that in Christ, all things hold together. That apart from Christ, nothing would hold together. God holds everything together. They continue to function in the way that he created them, according to the properties and design by which he created them. Water is going to work like water tomorrow. Right? We don't have to wake up tomorrow when water starts acting like lead. Okay? That's not going to happen. God created water. He designed it and he is going to keep it that way forever. There's a powerful argument for this when we start getting into current modern issues about gender and things like that, right? The idea that God designed Masculinity and femininity—he designed, designed male and female. That these are categories that are immutable; that they go forward for all of history and all of creation. That's a whole other thing. It's just an application that we could be talking about right now. But God holds all this stuff together by the continual presence of His will and power. Okay, that's preservation. That's providence. That's a subcategory. Okay, but let's talk about the next one. And this is probably the one that maybe at least somewhat we we. Think about more if you're thinking about providence. And that is this idea of concurrence. And the way one theologian describes it is he says, God, the doctrine of concurrence says, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to act as they do. We say it again, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to act as they do. So we think about passages like Ephesians chapter one, verse 11. Um, in him we have an enta- obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who what? Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things in existence work according to the counsel of God's will. So, what do you mean by all things? Well, you know what we I mean. We mean all things. Okay, we go through the Scripture and we see that fleshed out in different ways. The Book of Psalms uh, and and Job attribute the forces of nature to the will and action of God. The snow and the rain, fire and lightning. We think of these being things that are uh, natural consequences of material events, combustion, the water cycle, or something like that. Why does it rain? Well, because evaporation happened. It went up and then it cooled and it rained on the earth, right? That's not wrong. We're going to talk about how that is true. But the scripture says this, it is not ultimate because what is behind that is the will of God causing those things to happen. It also talks about the idea of random events. Things that we would normally think of as acts of chance are attributed to God. So what do we read in Proverbs? It talks about the idea of casting lots, which for us is, is the most common thing would be to roll a dice. And it says this. It says, you roll that dice and you think what's going on. That chance is going to happen. That the outcome of that die is all chance. But you know what the Bible says? It says... The outcome of that role is holy of the Lord. That everything that you think is just a random occurrence is actually something that God is behind and has ordained and planned. Which, for me as a board gamer, is a hard truth to hold on to, right? That every time you're playing Risk and you're like double ones, you're like, this is God's fault. Okay, right? Um the crazy thing is, is, is that we wouldn't think about that. We say none of these things are random chance, right? No, the Bible says those things that you think are random are actually from the will of God. The affairs and outcomes of nations. The New Testament book of Acts chapter 17 says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. What does that mean? That means God from the beginning of time has said, I will raise up a certain people and I'll call them the Babylonians or I'll call them the Persians or I'll call them the British or I'll call them the Americans. And I will, I will determine how big their nation gets, how strong their nation is, how big its boundaries are. And when I have decided that I want them to collapse, then they will collapse. And if I decide I want them to prosper, then they will prosper. So, again, why is America arguably the greatest um, and most powerful nation in the world? Well, it's because we're just so awesome, right? No, it's not. It's because of the blessing of God. And it was the same thing was true when Britain was the greatest nation in the world and when Rome was the greatest nation in the world and when Babylon was the greatest nation in the world. It's not because they were awesome. It's because God ordained it and willed those things into existence. And then ultimately, not just these things, not just nature, not just chance, not just history and society, but every single aspect of our lives is a function of God's providence. Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none. God knew every single day of your life and every occurrence of it. He knew that you were going to spill coffee on your shirt this morning. Um, It is all ordained. Job 14, his days are determined. The number of his months is with you, God. You have appointed his limits and he cannot pass. God has already set the boundaries of your life and you will fall into those boundaries. The Bible says a a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The Bible says God works all things together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Every event of your life has a focus on this outcome, right? The good that God has for you. You know, we see something like this in the, in, in the Joseph narrative over and over again, things happen that just seem convenient, right? Just seems like you would call it coincidence if you were a non-believer, but things keep on happening that just seem like you can't call it coincidence any longer. Joseph goes to look for his brothers. Remember that part, but they aren't where they should be. But walking around in the wilderness, what happens? He comes upon this random dude who's out in the wilderness and he's like, Have you seen my brothers? And the guy says, you know, I just so happened to see them a few days ago and just so happened to hear them say that they were going down to this to this other area. Man, that was sure coincidental. Coincidental. It just so happens that when he sees his brothers and they decide to betray him, that an Ishmaelite caravan just happens to be passing by that he can be sold into slavery to. It just so happens that he ends up purchased by a high-ranking official. In the Egyptian court, It just so happens that that leads to his imprisonment in a particular jail where it just so happens he will end up in contact with these two characters who one of them literally stands and has the ear of Pharaoh. It would be too much in all of these cases just to chalk this up to chance. Even if we didn't know God and believe that he was working to arrange these things, we would still look at this thing and go, man, this is weird. Just weird that he keeps on ending up in the exact right place at the exact right time. And I'm saying God is not just doing that with big important events like the salvation of the world in the story of Joseph or the salvation of, uh, humanity in, in the events of Christ's, um, passion and, 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 uh, crucifixion and resurrection, but he is doing it with every aspect of everything that has ever occurred. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, the great Baptist English preacher, um, he says it strongly and comprehensively. And he says it like this. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. You say, Ash, that sounds like fatalism, right? That sounds like determinism. Those may or may not be terms that that you're aware of. Fatalism, not fatal, like you're going to die, but fatalism, as in fate, that everything is determined by fate, that whatever is must be, is certainly an idea that has been out there in various philosophies and religions throughout the world. Determinism, that's a different term, but it's it's similar in how it works out, but is the it comes to a similar conclusion, but has a little different idea. It is that. Well, we everything is going to happen a certain way because really at the end of the day, everything is just one long series of cause and effect that will work out in a particular way. And so it couldn't do otherwise. So if we had the vision and the insight and the wisdom to see how all of the interconnected cause and effects work, we could tell the future because it's going to happen that way. In a simple way, you could think of a row of dominoes, right? If I click that first domino, you know what's going to happen. I can look at anyone in the row and say, that one's going to fall down. And that last one's going to fall down. That's what determinism says. Everything, at the end of the day, is cause and effect relationships. But here's the deal. The doctrine of providence is neither fatalism, nor is it determinism. Because there, and there's one big difference behind that, and that is this. Behind providence, there is a person, Not some fate, not some force, not some series of events. Behind the doctrine of providence, there is a person, a will, a wise, powerful, trustworthy, gracious person, and that person is God himself. And so things are the way they are, not because they couldn't be otherwise, but because God has chosen things to happen that way. And he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful, and he is all-sovereign. Again, that sovereign word kind of gets mixed up with providence sometimes. God's sovereignty means he can do anything as a function of his power and rule. But providence says God has chosen to do specific things in keeping with his grace and his justice and his plans for the universe. And so you know what? How does Joseph describe it in verse 32? He says, the matter has been firmly decided by God. This is going to happen. God has already decided. He has made up his mind about it. And you know what? There's an interesting thing in the word that John Piper points out about that word that we use, providence. And I think it's helpful to kind of get our brains wrapped around it and actually change our heart to the doctrine in some ways. Because this is what he says. He says, notice the word providence has the word in it, provide. Right? That's the source of it. Okay? So in the word providence is the word provide. Okay? Well, provide is made up of two Latin roots it is the word pro which means to or toward and it is the word vide which means see okay so essentially what it would seem like the word provide means is to see toward now if we say it that way we might think okay so is that like foreseeing right is that what we're talking about but we know that's not what the word provide means provide does not mean foresee what provide means is something more like i will see towards that or a phrase that we use commonly i will see to that right you talk about that all the time and it's funny to say the phrase because you go doesn't really it wouldn't make sense to a person who was learning english for the first time if you're like uh, hey are you you can you um have arrived to the airport for me and you say well i will see to that they'll be like what is what you'll see to that what does that mean but we know what it means right it means i will take care of that. I will provide and make sure that that is done. And I think there's something important there because here's the deal for church, for people who are bothered by the doctrine of providence. If you see providence as something that is ominous or repressive in some way, let me encourage you to shift your thinking to something else, to this, The peace and the hope that comes from an all-powerful God who looks at the entire universe and everything that takes place in it and says, I'll take care of that. I will see that it is provided for according to my good plan and my grace and my justice and my will. There is no one better suited for that job, folks, just so you know. OK, if there is anyone who is worthy to run the universe, it is God, the creator. And he does. Now, obviously, the most pressing question that is probably on all of our minds when we think about these issues is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But isn't providence inconsistent with our moral agency, with our moral choice? Doesn't this um, if God has predetermined all things, then then what's the point of even trying to do anything right he's just going to like make all these things do whatever he wants to do and another level of that is moreover how can he blame us for sin or moral evil if we're just acting out the predetermined ways that he is that he is already um determined for us right well that very argument is is part of the discussion in Romans chapter 9 and we're not going to go there because we don't have time to break down Romans chapter 9 for 20 hours or whatever, okay? Um, But I want to point to that to you to say that is the exact question that is being asked in that passage. And we don't have time to follow the argument here. But the short answer is this. No. Providence is not inconsistent with moral agency. Instead, what the Bible seems to do all the time throughout the entire run of the scriptures is it holds these two realities out at the same time. And it says... God has chosen and his plans are infallible and we choose and we make choices to be obedient or to sin, to follow him or not. And here's the deal. This is this is one of these things as Christians, if we are going to be biblical and we are going to let the Bible shape our understanding, then this is what we have to do. We have to say, it's hard for me to think about that, Ash. Like, it doesn't make sense in my mind how both of those things can be true at once. But here's the deal. The Bible seems to think they are true at once. And so instead of us saying, well, in my understanding of the way the universe works, I can't reconcile those things. That's because you're an idiot. Right. Because your your perspective on the universe is just not big enough. I'm an idiot. Right. I can't hold the immensity and sovereignty of God in my head. All I know is that his word, when he has revealed himself to us, he says things work this way. And things also work this way. And those two things seem to run parallel like train tracks from here. All the way to eternity. Think about obvious examples in the scripture, maybe the most uh, uh debated um, example in scripture. The Bible has no problem saying that God had ordained for Judas to betray Christ. And yet at the same time, Judas is morally responsible for his sin. Has no problem saying both of those things are true. And that's why this doctrine is called the doctrine of concurrence, All right? These things are working concurrently, together. God is working with and through and in conjunction with the things and the natural properties of the world that he created um, and preserves. And so if I say God determined that Judas would betray Christ, some will say, well, then that just makes Judas a robot. He's a puppet. Uh, and he's just being, uh, you know, he's he's acting out of movements by the puppet master. No, God is working in conjunction with the moral will of Judas and his ability to make real moral choices. Judas chooses to follow sin. He chooses to betray Christ. He chooses to be greedy and sell Christ out for 30 pieces of silver and whatever else motivations he had. And so those two things, God's will and our moral accountability, aren't enemies. They don't have to be reconciled because God declares both of them. We could go further down, and obviously there's all kinds of more conversations to have about that, but let's move to that third category, that third subcategory of the Doctrine of Providence. Preservation, concurrence, and now government. And we'll close with this. Government is just the idea that God has a purpose in all things and he always works in such a way to fulfill his purposes. So you can see that as sort of the last part of verse 32. The matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. God will accomplish these things. So, so let me, let me run back through them real quick and kind of give you a, a, a way of thinking about them. Preservation. These are the, the, the elements of providence. Preservation says God made things a certain way and he will keep them the way he made them. Concurrence says God works with and through those created things that he is preserving in a way that is in keeping with how they were made. And government says God will accomplish his plans through his creation. So I love the way Daniel puts it in chapter four of of Daniel says for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures for generation to from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's who God is. And so here's what I'll, I'll end it abruptly and a little bit in your face. Okay. If the rest of it was not in your face enough. Okay. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, you do not have a choice as to whether you believe in the doctrine of providence or predestination. You cannot say, I believe the Bible and I do not believe in providence. You cannot say that because providence is on every page of the entire thing. It's overarching connecting to every point of our lives is seen throughout all of Scripture. The only way you can say you believe the Bible but not believe in providence, and along with that, not believe in sovereignty, not believe in predestination, the only way you can do that is just not read the Bible. That's the only way you can do it, right? I'm not saying you're not a Christian, so don't hear me wrong, right? I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you if you don't believe these things. But what I'm saying is, is if you say that you believe what the Bible says and then you go, yeah, but I don't believe any of that predestination stuff, you're not paying attention to what it says because it is on every page, okay? Now, having said that, how those things, how providence melds with human responsibility, how those things match up, how God works out the reality of this train track that bears the weight of our experience that goes on for eternity is a whole nother question, right? Um th- This is in the weeds, but Arminians and Calvinists that are on these two per- spectrums of the argument, if you look at the classical description of those two beliefs, both of them believe in predestination, Just something that you would not expect. You would think by listening to people today, well, if I'm an Arminian, I don't believe in those things. And if I'm a Calvinist or a reformed person, I do believe in these things. You're wrong. If you go back and look at Arminian doctrine and Calvinist doctrine, everybody believes in providence. Everybody believes in predestination. You know why? Because you have to. It's just in there. However, those two groups, Arminians and Calvinists, have a different understanding about how that providence plays out and how it matches up with human responsibility and all those things like that. But you don't get an option to say, I don't believe in it. Because it's just the Bible. All right? Now, you might say, well, Ash, I don't get it. And it makes me feel weird. And I get upset when I think about it. Right? Um, it is a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. And the answer is, I'm right there in the same boat with you. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever, I've talked to you about my testimony in certain ways. When I was, uh, I had decided to go to seminary. Um I was already in seminary taking extension classes here in Maryville. I was, that was when I was first introduced to the doctrines of grace, to reform theology and things like that. And I will testify to you that during that time, and I was being introduced to these things, the thought was in my head that if this is who God is, then I am not interested in following him. Okay. That's me being honest with you. If this is who God is, then I'm not interested in this thing called Christianity. That was something that that went through my mind as I studied these things, as I was someone who felt like they were called to be a pastor, right? But then you know what I did? Is I said, God, I'm just going to trust that you're going to work these things out. I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of it in my heart and mind and soul. And guess what he did? As I continued to read the scriptures, as I continued to, to, to investigate these things, God just started opening my heart to them and making them clear. Um, I'll, I'll let you know, I'm not the only person that's ever happened. I'm in good company with that. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian that America has ever produced went through the exact same thing. Lots of people go through that. Okay. Because they come to these doctors and they go, man, it's just not the way I've been taught things were. And the answer is, yep, you're right. Because it's the word of God. Most of this is not what we are taught. Most of this is not how we think the universe works. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to come to convict, to shift our understanding, and to align it with what is true and what is real and what is found in God. Amen? So you can recommend this sermon to whoever you want to recommend it to. Um. Good, bad, or indifferent. Um and you know what? I'm gonna be straight up. They're probably not gonna just listen to it and go, Yeah, right. That's all I needed. I just needed somebody to say it that way, and I'm probably good now. That's probably not gonna be the way. Um, but maybe it'll be the start of something, who knows? Um, or maybe you'll go, No, Ash, this is not gonna be the one that I recommend to anybody to ever listen to. Um uh I'll leave that up to you. So um let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Um, Again, w- one of these things that people, this is so, it's so controversial and people are so torn by it. Gosh, I think it's the most comforting doctrine in the world. Um, As we've talked about the issues pertaining to the future of our church, the future of Mother Church. And I'm like, and God's going to figure it out. God is going to see to it. Now, again, that doesn't mean we are passive. Doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we do because God is going to um see, you know, he's going to make these things happen. The reality is, is God's plans are going to come to fruition and we could still end up finding ourselves unfaithful. And I don't want to be unfaithful, right? I want to be faithful in everything that God has called us to. So we want to actively be faithful in the way that God is leading us. But also, I just trust he's going to take care of it. He's just going to see to it. Because that's what a God of providence does. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Super bowl starts in one minute. I'm just going to pray for a while though, probably. Um, it was providential that, that we would just miss the beginning of the game. Um, but let's pray, ask that God would impress these things upon our hearts. Um, and, and let us find rest in them, not worry, right? Let us find hope and and safety in them and not feel as though we are being um, oppressed in some way from them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, what needless torment we put our hearts through as we question these things, um, that we worry and we fret about our own um, lives and our own freedom. Um, God, when you've called us to trust in you, that you've told us that you are capable, that you are good, that you are wise, that you are powerful, that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you will see to these things god why would we why would we take these burdens upon ourselves when you are so capable of governing the world without us god help us to trust you in everything god we know as we've read in your word this doesn't mean that you were going to make everything easy. It doesn't mean that everything is going to, uh, be in the short term happy. It means bad things are going to happen, that sin will happen, that betrayals will happen, that, that hurts will happen. And yet we can trust that even these things are in your will, that you are not blind to them that they are part of your plan, that you are working through them, that you will use them to your greater glory and our greater good. So help us to trust. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Standing this in the closing song. Oh, he the the Saints of the Lord, He is laid for your faith. in His What more can He say and you He has said? For the to Jesus that And I'll the this oh, my name, my God, God, and will still thee our strength. help thee and cause me to stand, we thy tell the it's to you so you shall not Save thy be thy this disgrace. you are in charge, thy hand of shall die. your so There shall be thy and blood, shall not hurt. I thy only inside, but i in and I you so, oh, Jesus, and we
0: that's a good song for that sermon um yeah. Um, how firm a foundation, right? That's the, the, the goodness of the, the doctrine of Providence, right? The fact that we have this God who is a firm foundation, um, for, for all the good and the blessing that, um, that we know he has in store for us. So, um, amen. Um. Just as a little information. So we're probably going to do, um, a discipleship series probably after Easter. It's been a few years since we've done it, but we got new people and new people who are asking questions and probably old people who want more answers to more questions. But we're going to do a doctrines of grace sort of discipleship series after the new year. So the doctrines of grace are, uh, the, uh, non-inflammatory PC way of saying the five points of Calvinism, um, right? So if you want to like not worry people, call them the doctrines of grace. If you want to like scare them and get in a fight and call them the five points of Calvinism, um, you're not trying to hide it, but that's what they are. So, uh, but we're going to talk about those in the new year, probably have a, you know, uh, six or seven Sunday nights where we go through some of these things and talk about them um, for, for your information. And and for those who are still working through these things and trying to figure them out, what the Bible says about them. So, um, hope you have a great week. Um, be in prayer for our community. Um, we were saying in prayer group tonight, there have been obvious things. Um, some things that you may not be aware of. Obviously, um, the, the death in the line of duty of, of one of our, um, Blank county sheriffs this week. Um, the previous week, there were two high school students who OD'd, um, in our community. And so we've had just a lot of big, harsh, scary things that are going on, um, that are, I don't know if there's a bigger um how those things are playing out um and what's going on in our community if they are isolated um but but be in prayer for those situations and and that God would work and the lives that have been touched by those things. um hope you have a great week. Here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. <laughs>